0: Would you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 19? I want to begin with this punctuating thought about the focal point of our morning. Listen, we're in the book of James, as Mark said earlier. But we're going to start in Psalm 19 because what we're looking at in James is what real Christians do. Real Christians are changed by the Word of God and real Christians are changing by the word of God. You're born again or brought forth by the word of truth, James says, by the exercise of God's will, supernaturally, the transformative instrument, the spirit of God working with the word of God is what changes you from death to life. You're born again by the word of God. You hear it. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Somebody preaches it. Somebody shares it. Someplace you read it and your life changes because you believe it by faith. The spirit of God produces a repentance without regret. The spirit of God produces a faith to believe. A dead person moves out of death into life. How? By the word of God. Changed by the word of God. But here's the part, and you know this, but I want to punctuate it because real Christians not only are changed by the Bible, they keep on changing because of the Bible. They are justified by faith in the scriptures and in the person of Christ revealed in the scriptures. And they are changing by faith. They're becoming like Christ. They're becoming what God saved them to be, conformed to the image of his firstborn son. So our focal point over these last few weeks has been real Christians, which is the theme of James, are changed and are changing by the word of God. If you're not changed, you're not a Christian. That's what James says. Real Christians live differently. They act differently than they used to act. No, it's not, James is not talking about external facade. He's talking about inward transformation that reveals itself in faith driven, truth based behavior. So if you're not changed by the word of God, you're not a Christian. And if you're not changing by the word of God, you're not living as a Christian should live. So the word of God is powerful. It's instrumental. It's transformational. It's living and active. It has a capacity to do what no other ingredient can do. If you believe that, would you say amen? amen? All right. I know you know that. That's why you're in church today. It's why you drove these miles parked wherever you parked because you understand what the Bible does. I want to highlight out of Psalm 19, just a couple of verses where the word of God reveals the power of what the Word of God can do in a succinct way in verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 is about God revealing Himself through the unspoken world and then through the spoken Word. In verse 7, the spoken Word is called the law of the Lord because it's reality, it's prescriptive. The law of the Lord, a reference to the Bible, is perfect, it's flawless. But notice what it does. It restores the soul. Restore, refresh, repair. If your soul is weary, the Bible restores it. If your soul is broken, the Bible repairs it. The Bible has supernatural ability, according to the words written here, to restore your soul. To refresh, to repair, to restore. Notice verse Part B of verse 7, the testimony, the personal witness of God is sure, meaning it's reliable. It makes wise the simple. What does the Bible do? It enlightens. It makes you wise in life. It keeps you. Here's the way I'd like you to think of it. It keeps you from the loss of being foolish. Foolishness is painful. The Bible makes you wise, not simple, so that you don't get at the end of a life path or a life decision and go, why did I do that? That was so foolish. The Bible is, is the means by which God employs to make you wise. And remember, wisdom is to be desired more than fine gold, yea, than much fine gold. Nothing you desire, nothing you desire compares with wisdom. How do you get wisdom from God through his what? Word. You can be old and have gray hair like I do, and it doesn't mean you're wise. Wisdom comes from above, and it comes through the word of God. So the way I'd like you to see it is the Bible makes you wise in life. It keeps you from the loss of foolishness. I put in my notes prevention. Prevention of a lot of pain. Unnecessary pain. Restoration and prevention. Number three, verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right. Notice what it does. It rejoices the heart. It rejoices the heart. It puts you in a position to experience something. Expressions of consistent joy. The Bible provokes joy. It rejoices the heart. Look, life doesn't always bring joy, but the Bible is the ingredient of God that precipitates joy, not the kind that's situationally based, but the kind that is spiritually based. And then finally, just a punctuation, verse 8, second part, the commandment of the Lord is pure, non-toxic, pure, undiluted, and it has the ability to enlighten your eyes, to give you clear understanding. To cause you to go, oh, I get it. It's like life's compass. Don't know where to go. Don't know what to do. Don't know how to make certain decisions. I'm a parent. I'm a husband. I'm a business leader. I'm a ministry tool. I'm a neighbor. What do I do? The Bible can enlighten. You know the word enlighten means to see what otherwise you haven't seen. The ability to comprehend what otherwise you haven't comprehended. It's like, ah, I get it. I see it in a category that matters. The Bible by itself, by the Spirit of God, through the instrument of revealed revelation from God, you can have eyes that see and a compass that guides the Word of God. So I have restoration, prevention, positive and life-giving emotion, and a life direction, a compass for life, the Word of God. That's the Bible. Truth. Most Christians don't take advantage of the gift that God's word represents. So now go with me back to James chapter one. And today's message in its entirety is 10 things you need to do in order to change by the instrument of the word of truth. That's the focal point of this passage. The word of God changes you. What is it? Well, he describes what it is, and we highlighted some of those things last week based on this text, what the Word of God does, it's truth, it reveals reality, it's law, it prescribes attitude and activity, it produces maturity, it affects liberty, it improves the quality of who you are, and it prevents calamity. That's what we're going to see, or that's what we saw, and those are highlights by way of reminder. So let's travel through verses 19 through 25 we've talked about what the word of God is, perfect law and the truth, what the word of God does, and what we need to do because it is what it is and does what it does. Verse 19, this you know. What do I know? Verse 18, that the word of truth has brought me forth by the exercise of God's will. That's what I know. Verse, because you know the word of truth is the means to transformation. Verse 19, because you know this, my beloved brethren, because I love you, let everyone, everyone, no exceptions and no exclusions. There's nobody who is able to change or to keep changing without the word of God. But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive what? The word that has been implanted or is being sown, as you listen to it, which is able to save your souls. Verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers of what? The word. Who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he was. Verse 25, but on the other hand, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Focal point, the word of truth, the perfect law, the law of liberty, the means whereby God transforms your life. So let's focus on the 10 things that you must do because the word is and does that and does what it does. 10 things a Christian should do to change, to allow the Bible to do what it does. What do you need to do? Because you know, verse 19 And this is just a statement because we covered this last week. What does a Christian do? Number one, you live your life with a resolved and settled conviction about the power of the word of truth to change you. You live your life. You get up tomorrow. You don't just come to church on Sunday. You get up tomorrow with the settled conviction, the resolution that the power of the truth is what changes me. It governs my choices Whether I'll memorize Psalm 1 or I won't, whether I listen to a sermon or I won't, whether I open the Bible or I won't, is driven by a conviction that I change because of this ingredient. By listening to it, by exposing myself to it, it's a settled conviction. Number two, verse 19, I am quick to hear. Quick, daily and proactively seeking to listen and anxiously learn the truth. I am gaining knowledge through my ears. What knowledge am I gaining? Knowledge of what God reveals through his word, the Bible. Number three, verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and wickedness. This is an aorist participle which modifies be quick. After cleaning out the earwax that inhibits your hearing, The sin of filthiness, immorality, wickedness. Number three is put aside all filthiness and wickedness. Here's how you would say it. Rapidly remove all earwax. That's the word filthiness. It's a medical term. It's one of the ways that word is used in the Greek language. Something that inhibits your hearing. Filthiness, moral wickedness, all impurity, all sin, get rid of it. Why? It inhibits the thing that allows me to change, to be transformed. Remove all your wax rapidly. Number four, and this is new material today. Verse 19, be slow to speak. The fourth do of a person who wants to change through the scripture is to be slow to speak. Let me define it. Deliberately think before you talk. Deliberately meditate before you talk like you understand. Slow to speak means you take the time to reflect. It's hard to listen and learn when you're talking. Remember, you lack wisdom. If you're going to mature into the prototype, which is a first fruit of Christ, you need what you don't have and you can't get it by talking. Socrates charged his disciples double. Reason, I'm going to teach you to do two things. Number one, I'm going to teach you what to say. I'm also number two, teach you when not to talk. Because you have two qualities you have to learn as you mature. Not only how to govern your tongue in terms of what you say, but to restrain your tongue by not talking. This is to say, if you want to learn the word of God, be slow. And the word slow, we talked about it sometime back, means to be deliberate, to meditate, to think. That's why we did Psalm 1. I tried to give you a tool that you could take, meditate, ruminate, chew on, think about it before you start talking about it. Slow to speak is a Recognition that I have to learn before I can speak. Listen to Proverbs 10, 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 17, 27. He who restrains his words gets knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. It's receptive. Ecclesiastes 5, 2. Do not be hasty. And this is, I imagine it to reflect on being frustrated with God. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, you're on the earth, therefore let your words be few. So the idea is that you are by resolution of heart, I'm going to be restrained. I'm going to deliberately think. Before I talk, I'm going to meditate on what I am quick to hear. So I understand it. I'm going to slow down so I can own it before I talk about it. Number five, be, by the way, the words that be is the main verb. Okay. This is a way of living. It's a present active imperative. No option. It's an everyday reflection. So every day I'm quick to hear. Every day I'm restrained and thoughtful before I speak. And every day I am slow to anger, which means I will resist reacting to the situation I'm in. Okay. And the context of this is trial and temptation. Okay. So this is at the tail end of dealing with trials successfully and understanding and overcoming and triumphing over temptation successfully. So, I'm going to resist reacting to the situation or the challenging exhortation that is given to me as a means to help me deal with my trouble. Be slow to anger. Anger is active displeasure. Anger includes frustration, which is heat. Anger includes attitude. Anger includes clamor, expression, altercation. Anger involves words. Anger involves coldness. Anger takes on a lot of faces. Anger is destructive. To be angry is to destroy. And to be angry, frustrated, attitude and action, verbal and nonverbal, derails my growth notice what it says in verse 19 be slow to anger verse 20 why here's the ground or reason why you need to be restrained because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God and what is the goal of God for every first fruit to be righteous you want to inhibit righteousness get frustrated get angry React emotionally, express displeasure toward whom God, the sovereign giver of the trial or the exhorter who's trying to help me navigate through life. Be angry with somebody or frustrated because they're bringing the truth to bear on the issues of your life. Don't get angry. Deliberately think before you talk and resist reacting. Let me say it a different way. Exercise deliberate and convictional restraint to not display frustration or active displeasure toward God or the source of potentially painful exhortation. Because the context is that the Word of God is speaking into your life, either coming directly from God or an agent of God. Don't argue and get frustrated listen and learn. Extract the good out of the difficult. A do is be slow to anger. Turn over with me to Second Kings chapter 5. And while you're turning, just listen to these scriptural punctuations. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, Proverbs 14.17. Proverbs 14.29, he who is quick-tempered, listen to this, not slow to anger, but rapid to anger, exalts folly. I did a little meditating on exalts folly. Exalts means you not only do stupid stuff, you promote stupid stuff. Folly is foolishness. Folly is what is the opposite of wisdom. When I am quick-tempered, when I respond emotionally too quickly I react resentfully. I'm frustrated. I exalt stupidity. I chose stupidity because everybody gets that. Folly's friendly. Oh, Harry, he's he's involved in a folly. No, Harry's living stupidly. He's exalting foolishness. And what follows foolishness? Injury and destruction. Destruction. Proverbs 14, he who is quick tempered, exalts folly. The first part of the verse, I should have read it. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. Proverbs 16, 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Why? Because a person who has self-control can overcome greater opposition than captive. Uh, being able to overcome or capture a city. Ecclesiastes seven eight, Patience of spirit is better. Listen to the contrasting thought than haughtiness of spirit. Haughtiness is pride. Here's an observation. Part of the reason I get hacked or angry or frustrated is because somehow my my person is either disrespected or somehow I'm diminished. When people salute me on the freeway because they're dissatisfied with my driving, (laughs) it angers me. My wife says, why does that anger you so much? Or why does that frustrate you so much? You know what it is? It's just disrespectful. It's like that's unacceptable. What housed in disrespectful is the assumption that I deserve respect, that I'm not worthy of that unacceptable activity, which is not the height of humility. It would sit in the category of maybe haughty, an over high opinion of Harry. Slow to anger is the product of recognizing. That I am, what I am. I'm not more than I think I am. I tur- ask you to turn to Second Kings chapter. And by the way, anger is always on the list of the fruit of the flesh, not the fruit of the spirit. So you got Galatians five: idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. The product of anger is the fruit of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh. Ephesians 4, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you. Colossians 3, 8, but now you also put them all aside. Leading word, anger. Anger does not work the righteousness of God. Not once, not ever. It is active displeasure towards someone or something. Contextually, first, my big problem is with God. I don't like what he's doing in my life. I don't deserve it. That doesn't move the ball forward. It moves it backward. Or I'm angry at you because I don't like what you're doing or saying to me in an effort to move me down the sanctified field of my Christian experience. Anger inhibits, and it can cost you more than you can imagine. And I found an illustration of this in 2 Kings chapter 5, 8 through 14. Backstory, Naaman is the captain of the uh, Syrian army. He's a favorite player of the king of Syria, and he has leprosy. And the Syrians have a little girl from Israel in their house, Naaman's house, And she communicates to Naaman's wife, there's a guy in Israel, a man of God, who can deal with Naaman's problem, leprosy. The power of God through the man of God can transform Naaman, your husband. So Naaman approaches the king of Syria, who really likes Naaman because he's a mighty captain of the army, and says... I've learned this. And the king of Syria sends a message to the king of Israel and says, hey, I heard, will you help my guy through your guy? That's the backstory. Verse 8. And it happened when Elisha... The man of God, the king of Israel's guy, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. So the king of Israel tore his clothes because he was humbled in the reality that there's a man with leprosy, but he doesn't necessarily know how to deal with it. He is not capable of resolving the issue, the appeal of the king of Syria for his guy Naaman. So he tears his clothes in humility before God. Help me. So he's humbled. Verse 8, he sent word to the king. This is the king. When Naaman, or rather Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in humility, that he sent word to the king. This is Elisha to the king of Israel. Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Let Naaman come to me. I have the capacity to engage God, and so let him come to me. You don't need to be beside yourself and expressing this kind of humiliation and humility. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses. That's the guy with the leprosy, the captain of the Syrian army, came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. So his GPS took him to Elisha's house. He shows up, you have arrived. This is where I'm going to get it get my problems taken care of. Watch verse 10. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. Verse 11. But Naaman was what? Furious. He was hacked. Active displeasure toward whom? Elisha. Why? Why? Because he didn't come to the door. He sent a servant. Are you kidding me? And not only that. I don't like what the servant says. Keep reading. But Naaman was furious. And went away and said. Behold i fought. thought. In other words, in my opinion, it would go down differently. He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. So he didn't do what I wanted him to do. He didn't even have enough respect to come out and see me. I'm furious and I'm angry. Behold, look at what he says. Verse 12, are not Ab. Abanah and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. So he's angry and he's just venting. Could I not wash in them and be clean? Watch at the end of verse 12. So he turned away and went away in a what? Rage. Now what's this guy have? A problem. He's a leper. And he's about to lose the benefit. Of the man of God and the power of God because he doesn't like how things have happened, what he's been asked to do, or what the man of God has chosen to do. Turned away in a rage. Verse 13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. In other words, just listen to what the man of God is saying by these words, verse 14, so he, Naaman, went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, which was what was prescribed according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Listen, Naaman could have been healed sooner than he was healed if he would have listened with humility instead of being angry because it didn't go down the way he wanted it to go down or because he didn't hear what he wanted to hear. Anger delayed his deliverance, frustration and anger. I thought that was a vivid testimony of the potential barrier of anger. Some of us are stuck where we are because of anger. And listen, anger has a lot of different faces. I highlighted that. Anger does not produce the goal of God, his righteousness in you. That's why it says, be slow to be angry. Number five, exercise deliberate and convictional restraint to not display frustration or active displeasure toward God or the source of painful exhortation because anger destroys and it derails your growth. Number six, notice the words, verse 21, after you get rid of the gunk, verse 21, putting aside all filthiness, that's the earwax and all that remains of wickedness, kakia, all, the, all of the ungodly lifestyle, attitude and action. Notice this main verb, in humility, receive the word implanted, humbly receive. Now, this is a unique word, humbly. Humbly is a rare word, and it is, there's no precise English equivalent. It is the combination of serenity, in other words, not frustration, resentment, or and anger, serenity, and power. William Barclay writes, Praltase, which is the word, describes the perfect conquest and control of everything in a man's nature, which may be a hindrance to his seeing, learning, and obeying the truth. Let me boil it down this way. Humbly receive. The word receive is decamai, to welcome. So God's talking. I've got the earwax out. I'm not frustrated. I'm listening. You know what I have? I have a teachable spirit. Humbly receive can be boiled down to the idea of a teachable spirit. Have a teachable spirit that welcomes the seed of the word. Listen, like a patient would when a doctor prescribes an antibiotic. If you're sick and you know you're sick and the doc says, here's a script that'll make you better. You humbly receive that. You know, I don't, I don't really buy that. I got a better plan. Really? Why did you go to the doctor? Because you didn't have a better plan. This is not self-help Christianity. This is the word of God doing its work. And I humbly receive it. I'm teachable when God's people, when God's word by his spirit speaks into my life. Let me say it another way. It's the rational reception of the truth. I know I need it. No proud resentment. Able to face the truth even when it hurts. I need this. Listen, sometimes people get the idea, at least I think, where we just passive resignation. Okay, it's not that. It's I welcome this. I want this. I need this. I want this like I'm listening to some expert tell me how to live my life. God is the expert, the Bible is the directive. And whether you're handling a bomb in your life or opening a safe to get the treasure of life, you need to listen because you know you don't have what you need. You're a humble recipient. Listen, if I had a bomb in my house and I don't know how to diffuse a bomb, I'm calling the bomb diffuser squad and they're on the phone and I'm listening humbly say, which, which, which wire do I cut? Which wire do I not cut? That's the Bible in your life. Keeps you from blowing up your life. Or I'm going to tell you this one time, Harry, this is the combination to the safe. And you're listening to the voice saying, here's the numbers that opens the treasure that's available for you. I'm going to tell you once, however you're going to listen to that is this word. Rational reception of the truth. Number seven, verse 22, not merely hearers. Do you see that? Not merely hearers. Let me say it this way, but certainly hearers. See, when you see here, not merely hearers, you tend to gloss the hearing and focus on the doing, but the idea is you got to hear it before you can do it. The word "here is is the word for auditor, note-taker, enthusiastic learner. Number seven do of life change is desire. Let me say it this way. Enthusiastic listening, learning, and note-taking. When the Bible's taught, I'm listening. I think I told you I've been listening to my Bible on the elliptical four or five days a week, the 25 minutes that I try to survive that experience, I am now listening to the Bible. You know, it's hard to listen to the Bible for 20 some minutes and pay attention. And my mind wanders. This word here means you're listening like you want to learn. Close your eyes, concentrate, get it. You know, you can go through a sermon at Grace Church because they're short and highly entertaining. No, they're not. They're substantive and full and pithy. And John may talk an hour. You know what? Or more. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Nate's good. He, he watches the clock. You can count on Nate to be done. You know what you have to do at Grace Church? You got to want to learn and you got to want to listen. When it says not merely a hearer, it doesn't mean you're not a hearer. Hearing is not just words going into your head. It's enthusiastic learning of those words. It's listening. It's note-taking. Do you know you remember 50% of what you write down versus 10% of what you don't write down? Confucius said, weakest ink, better than strongest memory. Not merely hearers. Enthusiastic listening, learning, and note-taking. An auditor was somebody who wanted to be there, wanting to learn. They were permitted to treat tests and assignments as optional. Which is why he goes on to say, not just a hearer, merely, but certainly. But number eight, number eight is diligent doing. Prove yourselves, doers of the word. The word prove is prove and display in reality. It is a present imperative. In other words, what you listen to enthusiastically, you need to demonstrate in reality that you're not just a learner, you're an active applier. Diligently and daily apply the word you have learned. If you want to change, you've got a proven display in reality. Not wish, not potential, but actual. Number two in that thought is the word do. So the word prove means actually do it in reality. And the word do, doer, is a beautiful Greek word, poiete, or poietai. It's the word from which we get poet. Poet. It has three nuances that I want to punctuate. If you're a doer, this is what you are. Number one, you're creative. This is not ritual or lifeless practice. You creatively perform the truth that you have learned like those meditation cards I gave you. That's creative for me. Maybe that's not creative as you could be, but for me, it's creative. Seven steps, preparation before I go to bed, up in the morning, sink and shower, memorization, then evaluation in my devotional time, pray it at my meal, share it with my family, apply it at night. That's me. That's creative. Harry, creative. Doing the word means you creatively apply it. You think about it. Number two, it's productive, not just creative. Doodling is creative, but it is not productive. That's why you see in verse 25, you're an effectual doer. See the word effectual effect. There's some practical outcome. It must produce results, evident and observable change. There ought to be more righteousness in you. There ought to be more godliness in you. There ought to be more Christ-like first fruit behavior in you not just Harry knows the creative truth, but he's productively demonstrating changes because of that truth. It's productive. So number one, it's creative. Number two, it's productive. And number three, it is poetic. What is a poet? A poet is a person who uses words, puts them together in a creative way and in a beautiful way. The word po- poietai used in this verse means poet. A poet is one who puts words together in order to express a thought or feeling in a beautiful manner. That is what God wants to you to be as a Christian. Doers of the truth, creators of the beautiful, poets of the truth in a way that the world that is watching you sees something beautiful in you. We say in athletics sometimes, poetry in motion. It's just that athlete, the way he moves, the way she moves, the way they function, it's poetic. Doers of the truth, we're to take the experiences of our life, even trials and temptations, couple them with the truth of God's word that we hear and present them as an attractive poem to the watching world around us. We are creative, we're productive, and we're poetic. Poietai. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely enthusiastic note-takers and listeners. Number nine. Wow. Number nine. Intently. Like a man who looks, verse 23, he has looked, verse 24, verse verse 25, like one who looks intently, verse 25, the one who looks intently at the perfect law. The word look is an intensified word to think about something you're observing so you can make a decision about it. It's the way you go through the buffet line. You're looking at the different sizes of the pie and you're going, I want the big one. You're thinking, you're making a decision, or you're looking carefully at a potential date prospect and you're saying, she's pretty. She behaves in a particular way. I'm, I'm looking, I'm paying attention because I'm going to make a decision, yes or no, to invite her on the date. And she is looking at you going, I may or may not go based on how I'm looking at you. Okay, this is that word. Look means scrutiny. It's the way a woman would look at a makeup mirror. Okay, you're you're, you're paying more attention. Some of you guys may use a makeup mirror. I don't know. But (laughs) it's the idea that I'm looking to see and I'm looking intently. Katanoia, I'm thinking and I'm intensifying what I'm looking at. It's not just blowing by me. Or maybe this is illustration will help you. I don't know if I'm going to buy that car, that used car or not. So I'm examining it. It's intentional looking. And then in this case, it adds the word intention. Okay. To look intently. The word intently. It's the way John, the disciple looked into the empty tomb. He absorbed it. He drank it in. He's not going to forget it. He's paying close attention. So it marks him. He's not going to forget it. Intently penetrating absorption, intense occupation, consuming attention. So you don't forget, here's the bottom line. Number nine, do study intensely the truth with careful attention to the details of it as if your life and your future depended on it. Pay close attention, look at it like it matters. And then number 10, Number 10, the changing do number 10 says, verse 10, not only do you look intently at the perfect law, and by the way, that means you don't forget. You don't just glance at it and walk away. You, you pay attention and you keep it in front of you. Looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and does what? Abides by it. The 10th do is you are a consistent, determined To obey and live the truth you know. You stay in it and you consistently apply it. It's not January 1st, I'm going to get fit this year. It's my new resolution. And then in 30 days, the gym membership doesn't matter to me. Christians who change, not only become committed to fitness through the truth, they keep showing up at God's gym in his word they listen to it, they they focus on it, they learn from it, and they keep on doing it. And verse 25 says, you do those things, you'll be blessed in what you do. The kind of blessing you can't fabricate, the kind of investment that you can't effect, but God promises. Wouldn't you like to have a guaranteed investment? Yes, you would. Wouldn't you like a percentage that's really high? Yes, you would. The word of God sown like seed in your life will produce a crop you can't imagine. You're like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. You bear your fruit in season. Your leaf never withers. And whatever you do, you prosper. You want that? This is the means to that. The dues of change. The don'ts are the flip side. Father, thank you for the time today. Thank you for the opportunity to consider what a real Christian lives and thinks like. Lord, I pray that today would be an expression of application because the sermon is not done when we leave the church or when the preacher is done. The sermon's done when it takes root in our heart and it gets lived out in our life. Our devotions aren't done when we close the Bible. The devotions are done when our life reflects the application of that truth. Make us doers of the word. Lord, help us to do the things that will help us to look like Jesus. Because without you, we can't become what you saved us to become. And to that end, I ask it for us all and all God's people said, Amen.